You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. We're going to be looking at two chapters today. I'm not going to read every verse for the sake of time, but we're covering chapters 40 and 41 in Joseph's story. What we do at our church is go book by book through the Bible, verse by verse, and we find ourselves in Genesis 40 today, picking up in Joseph's story where he has been sold into slavery by his brothers. He's been transported to Egypt. He was uh, serving in the captain of the guard's house, a guy named Potiphar. His wife made advances at him. He resisted the temptation. His wife made a false accusation of sexual misconduct that landed Joseph in prison. And that's where we pick up the narrative today. We find Joseph in prison. And God is going to, once again in Joseph's life, use dreams to, uh, to actually move uh, Joseph where he wants him to be. Joseph has been given a gift by God to be able to interpret dreams. Now, uh, before we jump into the text today, I need to give a disclaimer. Um, just because Joseph is an interpreter of dreams doesn't mean that you're supposed to be. And it doesn't mean that your dreams even have significance. I always say, usually your weird dreams are because you ate Taco Bell too late at night. That's probably all there is to it. Um, but, but God can reveal things in lots of crazy ways, as we see. Uh, he, Joseph is going to interpret multiple dreams in these two chapters. Uh, there's a, a biblical hermeneutic that's important for you to understand. If you're a note taker, I actually want you to write this down. That narrative is not prescriptive. When you read the Bible, you need to understand what literary genre you are reading. There's lots of them in Scripture. There's poetry. Uh, there's song. There's apocalyptic prophecy. There's narrative. There's doctrinal passages. All these things are different literary genres, and when the Bible is, is just telling what happened in history, we call that narrative. And so all of Genesis is narrative. It's, it's teaching us uh, about what actually happened. And so just because God endowed a gift with Joseph to be able to interpret dreams doesn't mean that's prescriptive for you to do in your life. Okay, so don't try to make narrative prescriptive. Narrative is not prescriptive in the Bible. Got you? Tracking with me? Okay. All right, so as we move on to this, <clears throat> um, a misapplication of this text of Joseph interpreting dreams would be to like read into every dream that you have. Now, uh, I think a little over a week ago, I had a dream, and it was actually a nightmare. It was, it was horrific, so horrific, in fact, that I'm not going to recount the details of it, but it was, it was very jarring for me. You ever have those nightmares that are just like really intense? And it wasn't like boogeyman, Halloween-type uh, supernatural stuff. It was very real, very vivid. It was a tragic event that happened in my life. I was dreaming about it. And when I woke up, I actually had tears running down my face. I was crying in my sleep. And when I woke up, I, I prayed and I was so thankful that it was a dream. I was like, God, thank you that that's not real. It felt so real. It felt so vivid. And so as I was thankful to not have that be my reality, I went back to sleep and my daggone brain, it was just like previously on Will's dream. <laughs> and I was so thankful to be free from it. And I go back to sleep, and, and my brain just picked up right where it left off. And, it, and I wake up crying again. You know, it's just like, what is wrong with me? Uh, it was the Taco Bell. I ate too much Taco Bell. And, and so what, what happened with that was, um, was, was the, the dream just shook me to my core. Now, I don't want you to take dreams to, to necessarily mean something from God. And, and I don't take my dream to be that. But that feeling that you get when you have a really vivid dream, I need you to know what that feels like because we're going to see that from several characters um, in today's story. And so as we look at Joseph's story in 40 and 41, three settings um, 
of, of sermon outline here. Uh, prison, palace, and power. So these three things are going to kind of be the outline that I'll flow through as Joseph begins uh, where we pick up today in prison. He eventually is released and he goes and stands before Pharaoh in the palace. And then he eventually rises to power as great as second in command in all of Egypt. So let's begin in the prison, chapter 40. Uh, let's begin at verse 1. Seems like a good place to start. It says, sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. Now what happens is, um, as this butler and baker are thrown into prison, we're not given the offense or why, uh, what happened with Pharaoh that causes them to be thrown into prison, but all we know is they're thrown into the same prison with Joseph. Joseph, remember, is given responsibilities in prison. He's, he's uh, successful even in prison. And so he begins to kind of oversee them and, and attend to them and, and things like that. And uh, the butler and the baker both have very vivid and jarring dreams that are described in detail. I'm not going to read them for the sake of time, but I'll give you an overview. The butler has a dream that there's a vine growing, and on that vine there are three branches. Uh, those three branches, <clears throat> we're told later by Joseph, represent three days that are going to pass. Those three days pass. And they are interpreted to mean that he would be released and restored because what happens in his dream is he's picking grapes from those branches, squeezing them into the Pharaoh's cup, and then handing the cup back to the king. And so Joseph interprets that, um, that he would be released from prison and he would be restored to his job as the cupbearer for the king. Now the baker, his dream is very similar, but it doesn't have a favorable interpretation. His dream is that he has three baskets of baked goods stacked on his head as he carries them, and the birds come along, and they swoop down and hover over him, and they eat the baked goods out of the baskets on his head. Um, and as Joseph interprets this dream, he gives the baker the hard truth that the interpretation is that he would be taken out of prison, but not to be released. He would be taken out of prison to be executed, that he would be hanged, and maybe a detail that Joseph didn't necessarily need to add, but he tells the baker, the birds are going to eat your flesh. I mean, he's just laying it all out there for him. Um, and so this actually comes to pass exactly as Joseph says. In verse 20, it says, on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Now, I want you to notice a couple of important things that set the stage for God's sovereign plan with Joseph's life. Um, what, what's happening is that God places him sovereignly in Potiphar's house to, to be not, not his permanent place of influence, but as a stepping stone into prison, which would then lead him to a greater commander, Pharaoh himself, that would lead him to Pharaoh, that would lead him to a greater authority and a greater power that would ultimately, uh, spoiler alert, will bring his family from the promised land to Egypt to receive food and safety where they will multiply for generations and become so numerous that they can't be counted. They will become an actual nation within another nation of Egypt. And all of this is setting the stage. 
How, these dreams that God is allowing Joseph to interpret is setting the stage for his sovereign plan to come about. And I want you to notice some things about Joseph. First of all, he is ever ready to share the truth. He's, he's, uh, he's not ashamed of God's truth, even when it's hard to tell someone like the baker. Um, and Notice he doesn't even have to get in these guys' business. He doesn't have to ask them about their dreams. He doesn't have to use his gift to reveal to them what's going to happen. But he takes the time to inquire and care about them. In chapter 40, verse 6, it says, When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? This is probably a bad question to ask someone in prison. Why is it not going so well, chief? It was like, because we're in prison. Like, why, why do you think our faces are downward? Um, but they say not only is, is it the fact that we're in prison, but we've had these really troubling dreams. And Joseph here, I think, shows great maturity as he's willing to listen to them and share truth with them. And I just want to apply that to your life for a moment. Like, let, let me just give you a tip for evangelism. All of, all of you should, should hope for opportunities to share the gospel. I never want to guilt you about your uh, sharing of the gospel or lack thereof, but we are called, all of us who are Christians, to be missionaries and to look for opportunities to share the hope that is within us, uh, the, the message of Jesus Christ. And many of you may have a really hard time doing that. Maybe you're introverted, maybe you're shy, maybe you don't know how to you know, pose the question, but let me just give you a, a quick evangelical tip. As, as you seek to look for opportunities to share the gospel with people, the number one thing you can do is listen to them. Not speak to them, that'll come later, but listen to them. You actually gain an opportunity to speak to people by listening to people. And so many people who want to share the gospel just want to take the Bible and beat people over the head with it and shove the gospel down people's throats. But the reality is, is there are all kinds of people around you who are begging to be heard for, heard and cared for by someone. And God's opportunity that he places in front of us oftentimes begins with listening to people. And so ask people what's going on in their lives. Ask people how they're doing, how their day's going. Like, really. Ask people how you can pray for them. Ask people these things and see how God and his spirit will work those things into segues into the gospel. I mean, just imagine going to your typical Walmart trip. You're going to Walmart to buy something. I don't know how many people are in Walmart at a given time, but it seems like every time I want to go is when everyone else on planet Earth wants to go to Walmart, Okay. And, you know, you walk in and, and it's crowded, but, but the next time you're going to run about some mundane task in your life, I challenge you to do this. Just stop and think of, of all the people that are here at Walmart or this grocery store or whatever. How many of them are just gripped by some sin that they don't want in their life, but they can't seem to get rid of? Or how many of them are going through a divorce right now? Or how many of them are intensely overcome with anxiety and worry right now? I mean, just run through all those things. And, and what you'll see, instead of just a grocery store, you'll see a, a building full of people made in God's image who need someone to care for them. Now, listen, that doesn't mean you're going to become a counselor in the frozen food section, okay? It might. I mean, praise God if it does. But it means that you are ever ready to share the truth of God and hear God's creation. You see, we should concern ourselves with the concerns of others. And we should be ready to listen to others. And so Joseph does this really well. He asks them, why are your faces downcast? And he listens to them and he shares truth with them. And Joseph actually makes it clear that it's God's truth. It's not his 
It's not anything he uses to prop himself up or um, elevate his own glory. In verse 8, it says, They say to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. He's not claiming himself to be God. He is professing to them who he worships. He's saying, I know the one true God who, who knows the meaning behind everything, and I would love to talk to you about that. You see, Joseph refuses to use God's gift that's been given to him for his own advancement and glory. You know that God's giftings are for God's glory. The things that God has blessed you with are real and tangible blessings to you. They are for your good, but first and foremost, they are for his glory. That, that the wealth that you have, the possessions in your care, the, the, the abilities that you have, the privilege and the positions and the, that you find yourself in, all of those things are meant to be put together as leverage for the gospel mission and Jesus' fame and glory. Now, it's not wrong to benefit from that as well. If God has blessed you with wealth, if God has blessed you with positions of privilege, if God has blessed you with those things, it can be for your good. A lot of times our pastors will pray a phrase, you've probably heard us pray it a lot, that we pray, God, for your glory and our good. Like we, we're okay with both of those, but the priority is what we get at. What's most important is God's glory, not our good. But it's not selfish to want wellness when God's glory is your priority. And Joseph here makes it very clear that his priority is that, that God is the one who brings truth. God is the one who is sovereign over all things. But then he also says, well, God's blessed me with this ability to interpret dreams. And if that leads to me getting out of jail, I'm okay with that, right? Verse 14, he says to the butler, only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. He's saying, get me out of this, this cell, this prison. And so Joseph seeks after God's glory first, but also his good. Now, after three days, uh, this plan begins to happen. God's revelation comes to pass, um, as is not surprising to those of us who worship the Lord. And Joseph, I want you to think about it from Joseph's standpoint. He's still in prison. He doesn't get to see the cupbearer get restored to his job in the palace. And he doesn't get to see uh, the baker be hanged. The only thing he knows is both of them left, on the left the prison the day that he thought they would. And so initially, I think, you know, in the days after the cupbearer leaves, he's like, all right, any day now, they're coming to just open my cell and walk me right out of here. And every time the jailer would come in and he'd, you know, Joseph had his few little belongings packed up by the cell door. He's ready to go. And he's like, buddy, I don't know what you're talking about. You ain't going nowhere, right? And, and imagine as Joseph waits day after day and that release doesn't come and how he begins to doubt, how he begins to um, have, have, have struggles and maybe even eventually think, man, did I, did I miss something? Did I misinterpret what God's revelation was? And Maybe, maybe the cupbearer didn't actually return to Pharaoh. Maybe he doesn't have a voice with the king like I thought that he would. And Joseph uh, is feeling let down and abandoned, I'm sure, during this time because it's not just a few days or a few months that go by. The Bible makes it clear that two years pass. And so for two years, Joseph is wondering, am I ever going to get out of this place? Some of you might be in a season of difficulty where you feel like that. Am I ever getting out of this? 
Am I ever escaping from this struggle I'm in or this circumstance that, that God seemingly, I know he has the ability to get me out of, but he seemingly is just leaving me in it. Let me encourage you with Psalm 31, verse 15. The psalmist wrote, My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. It is good for us to pray to be released from difficult circumstances, but we also have to, in our prayers, acknowledge that our times are in God's hand, that his timing is perfect and we trust him. And in his perfect timing, at the exact right time, for the sovereign plan of history, Joseph would be released and be brought to power. So let's look at when that happens when he is brought to the palace in chapter 41. In verse 1, it tells us that two whole years go by of Joseph remaining in the prison after interpreting these dreams. In verses 1 through 7, Pharaoh is given dreams as well. Now, his dreams, uh, I'll, I'll summarize them for you as well. His first dream is that there are seven plump and fat cows just hanging out by the Nile, grazing, and these seven skinny cows come out of the Nile River and eat the fat cows. That sounds like, you know, like Walking Dead AMC type stuff. Like, I don't know what the cows were doing in the river, why they were hanging out down there, but they come out of there like zombie cows and they eat the other cows. This is a terrifying dream, right? And then, you know, Pharaoh's like, whew, glad that was a dream. He goes back to sleep and his brain's like previously on Pharaoh's dreams. And he has another dream. And in the second dream, he has a dream of seven plump ears of grain that have grown and are, are big. And then they are eaten and gobbled up by seven thin ears of grain that sprout out of the ground. And so he's troubled by this. Um, again, I think, I think God and his sovereignty uses like the, the realness, the feel of these dreams, the, the vivid nature of them to really startle and, and, um, and, and trouble up their spirits. And we see the reaction in verses 8 through 12. So, so in the morning, uh, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night. He and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard, when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. Now, I want you to see God's perfect timing. That, that had, had the cupbearer remembered to speak Joseph's name to Pharaoh, maybe he would have gotten his pardon, but he wouldn't have gotten his position in front of the king because the king hadn't had any troubling dreams yet, nor had the cupbearer uh, won enough trust from Pharaoh at that point to trust, hey, maybe this guy that interpreted your dream could also interpret mine. It was all perfect in God's timing to allow Joseph to be brought out of the prison to the most powerful place on the planet to testify of the one true God. This is God's perfect timing. And Joseph here is finally remembered, and it leads to him being brought straight to Pharaoh. In verse 14, it says, Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream. 
And there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And so he comes before the king, but, but he only comes before the king after he gets all shaved and cleaned up. I imagine he's like Robin Williams emerging out of the Jumanji board game. It's been 30 years, you know, and he's just all over the place crazy. And, you know, he can't, you know, he can't just go into the king that way. Uh, the king, especially in the nation of Egypt, you could not just appear before the king in a disheveled mess, and so he had to go shave and clean himself up. And I want you to see the antithesis between Pharaoh and the true king that Joseph worshipped. The Old Testament makes it clear as God reveals to Israel that God was their king. God was the one who ruled over them. God was the one that they paid allegiance to and bowed down to. And God never left Joseph's side. He didn't care how messy his beard was, how nappy his hair got, how gross his clothing was. God never left his side. The God who promises the same to us, that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. But here when he goes before this earthly powerful king, he has to clean himself up. Let me make it very clear to you that God makes no uh, expectation of you to clean yourself up before coming to him. That's his job. He doesn't share his job with you. It is God's joy to clean you up. It is what his entire redemptive process throughout history is about, cleaning you up. He wants the joy of cleaning you up. He doesn't expect you to do it on your own before you come to church. But here, Joseph does get cleaned up because you can't go in like Tom Hanks and cast away. I mean, just imagine if he rolls in, got, got a volleyball with his handprint on it, and he says, I can, I'm a smart guy. I can interpret your dreams. Pharaoh's just going to kick him out. He's not going to believe him. He's got crazy eyes like Adam Sandler's one friend. And, and so he's cleaned up, probably even dolled up with the Egyptian makeup and garb and all that stuff. And he comes in, and Pharaoh says, I've heard you can interpret these dreams. And here before this powerful earthly king. He has an opportunity to speak to the most powerful man in the world, and, and the first thing that he utters is not to preserve himself, to save himself, or to advance himself. The first words that he utters are to bring glory to God. In verse 16, Joseph answers Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Imagine for some crazy reason, Joe Biden wants to meet with you, and he wants to give you a promotion at work, and he's got the power to, I don't care what you think about Joe Biden, I'm not getting political, but the, the President of the United States, the power of the position wants to hang out with you, and you have an opportunity, if you make a good impression on him, that he can advance you, and you got to make yourself look good. And, I mean, just think of the craziness of that. This is probably even heightened in Joseph's mind because of the, the political landscape of the ancient world. I mean, they, they viewed Pharaoh to be a god. And here Joseph stands before him, and he has every opportunity to save his own neck and to make himself look as cool as possible. And the first thing he does is he says, it is not in me. The first thing he does is deny any power that Pharaoh has assumed that he has. This is a godly man. This is a man who will share no glory with God, but rather will reflect all glory to God. And so Pharaoh hears him and begins to tell him of his dream. He gives all the details of his dreams over again in verses 17 through 24. Seven cows, seven ears of grain. And Joseph tells him that the, seven, uh, the sevens in his dream represent seven years each. And he says that there will be um, seven years of bountiful harvest 
and plenty and seven years of famine immediately following. We see detail of that in 29 and 30, uh, verses 29 says, There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. Now, what Pharaoh doesn't know, and even Joseph doesn't know, is that these 14 years that are getting ready to begin are crucial to the Genesis, the beginning of the nation of Israel. God is using Joseph to give wise counsel to a godless nation, Egypt, that will be a safe haven, initially at least, for the nation of Israel to grow and to prosper. Then God in his providence will lead them out of that nation when they are enslaved into freedom in the promised land. And so God uh, tells Joseph to give this wise counsel. He tells him, what you need to do is store up one-fifth of the produce of the land for the plentiful seven years so that you have a great stored up uh, wealth for the, the famine that's coming. Now, uh, I, I just needed to take a moment in the sermon here to repent of some things and make a public apology to Aldi. I don't know if anybody here works for Aldi um, or anything like that, but I've been pretty negative about Aldi in some of my sermons. And they have saved me so much money in the, in the recent weeks that I wanted to publicly apologize and just announce that I've converted uh, to Aldi. Sims are still inferior to Slim Jims. Let me make that clear. However, I have saved a lot of money. My family's very thankful for the money that we've saved by buying more groceries at Aldi. And, and I was thinking about, you know, when you make your grocery run, I don't know if you guys do this or not, but when you bring all your groceries home, right, you carry them in one trip like real men do. And you bring, that's why we have kids. We don't have to carry as many groceries. Each kid does it. Like sometimes I don't carry any. And we get them all, you know, up in the kitchen. And I'm looking, and I'm like, man, it's like a feast. And, and my wife is like, you can't eat all the groceries the first day we bring them into the house. This is like, this is supposed to be like two weeks worth of food. And then I see the giant bag of pepper jack cheese cubes that are for the kids' lunches, and I'm like, that sucker's gone tonight. I'm down in that as soon as they turn their heads. And, and they had to, <laughs> the Egyptians had to have the self-control. Like, they just went to Aldi, and they store all this up, and they can't eat it. They have to, they have, to have the self-control and the trust of, of a God they didn't even worship to store back seven years' worth of food supply. And what happens is they do that under the leadership of Joseph, and it leads all the nations to eventually come to Egypt. Again, in God's sovereign plan and in his way, Joseph's family, his brothers who had wronged him, will come and they will prosper by being in the Egyptians' care, more specifically, in Joseph's care. And so let's look thirdly and finally at this rise to power from Joseph. In verse 37, it says, This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house. All my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Essentially what Pharaoh is saying is there is no one in this land greater than you. And he's even saying, I'm going to yield to your wisdom and your decision in everything except for things regarding the throne. And so Joseph, again, finds himself directly in the center of God's sovereign plan because he has walked as a faithful and obedient servant in God's plan. 
The favor of Pharaoh is is God's favor actually unfolding. You you ever think when you look at this story, like, you know, I read it and I'm like, Joseph could have been lying. He could have just made this up, right? Maybe he just wanted to get out of prison. Is Pharaoh insane? Why is he believing this guy that just shaved yesterday? Like, why is he believing this guy? And, and, and I think it's evidence that God not only works through circumstances, but he works on the hearts of men. Even men that don't worship him. God is sovereign. He is all-powerful. None can resist his will. The scripture tells us this. And so Pharaoh is not stupid. What Pharaoh is doing is he is being guided by the hand of the Almighty. And he says, I'm going to trust this Hebrew with my entire country. My entire wealth is going to be placed in the hands of this Hebrew man that I just met today. Only God could bring this about. And Scripture makes it clear that Joseph rises in power to second in command in all of Egypt And what's interesting in my studies of this, I found that that many Hebrews actually looked at Joseph's rise to power as mirroring God's loving creation of Adam in Genesis 2 and 1. Now, what's what's really interesting about this is is Joseph actually is, in a sense, the Adam of the nation of Israel, the first man of the nation of Israel. He is the one in which God's favor has resided that is going to lead to the birth of the nation as they multiply in the land of Egypt. And there's some similarities here that are made, um, I think, between the creation account at the beginning of Genesis and Genesis 41. In Genesis 41, 42, it says, Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. He's had to get him some bling, you know. But the signet ring is, is very important. The signet ring would have been, I mean, it kind of functioned like a signature today. Leslie has a PNG of my signature that she just puts on stuff, so it looks like I signed it, but really it's just her computer doing it. I, I'm not supposed to tell you all that, I don't think, but that's just how, you know, just, we'll sign this, right? Signet ring. And, and the, but the signet ring was, was really, I mean, it's actually used in the New Testament to show God's seal, and, and it's, it's like... It's like Joseph was able to carry the identity of the king with him. And, and ancient Jews actually com- compared this to the Imago Dei, Latin for the image of God, that, that God created Adam in his image to carry about his image, his dominion. And so like man's dominion in God's image, here Joseph has dominion uh, carrying Pharaoh's authority. Um, also, uh, the king gives Joseph a name and a bride, just like God does with Adam. In verse 45, it says, Pharaoh called Joseph's name, it's a good name if anyone's looking for names, Zaphonath Paneah. And he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Now, um, what's, what's interesting about this name that Pharaoh gives, again, God is sovereign over the whole thing, but the name most people think in the Egyptian etymology, it means a treasury of rest or a wealth of rest. And so Joseph, after he had had more than a decade of slave labor, imprisonment, and poverty, he now enters into wealth and rest. It's a beautiful spiritual reality for those of us who are in Christ as well, that this life is filled with many pangs of sin, destruction, difficulty, strife, sadness, and after of which we enter into a wealth of rest with our Creator. Joseph also begins to be fruitful and multiply, just like Adam was told to do. 
In verse 50, it says, Before the year of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Seneth, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. He names his two sons literally forgetfulness and fruitfulness signifying that he has forgotten the hardship of his past and he has stepped into the fruitfulness of the grace in the present. Just like Adam as well, Joseph was given joyful work to work the land of creation. In verse 47, during the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly and he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and he put food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in a great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Now again, I think there's some beautiful symbolism in here. Remember God's covenant with Abraham, what he told him? That your descendants will be as numerous as the sands on the seashore. That just like you can't count the grains of sand, that's what your descendants will be. And in the very act of bringing the family to Egypt so that they can multiply to be so numerous that they can't be measured, we see that, I think, uh, preeminently in the storing up of this grain that can't be measured. And for the Hebrews, not only did Joseph point them back to Adam and God's loving creation of Adam, it was meant to also point them forward to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Where Adam failed... And sinned, and Joseph was insufficient. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, would bring perfection and redemption, a message that many Jews would not receive themselves. They would miss completely. And Jesus came and testified that all of the Old Testament was about him, that every narrative from Adam to Joseph and on throughout the Old Testament ultimately was for the purpose of testifying of the Son of God coming to earth to die on a cross, to raise from the dead, to save sinners eternally. And Joseph, I think, is a beautiful type of Christ and points us to Jesus Christ as he's in prison. He's got two criminals on either side of him, one uh, to be released to paradise and the other to be condemned to death. Joseph even utters very similar words to the thief on the cross who looks at Jesus. In verse 14 of Genesis 40, he tells the butler, "'Only remember me when it is well with you.'" And it reminds me of Luke 23, 42, when the thief looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus, as he's on the cross, he actually talked about what his purpose on the cross was, and it was to draw all nations to himself. The Greek word is ethnos. I love to remind you of that because it doesn't just mean governments. It means all nations, all different types of people is what ethnos means. I will bring all people to myself and in verse 57 of Genesis 41, it tells this about Joseph. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. The perfect circumstances that landed Joseph where he was in God's sovereign plan led to all nations being led to this one man, pointing us forward to a greater truth in the Messiah that Jesus himself predicted in John 12, 32. And he says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Again, if you know your Sunday school, you know that the future of this narrative shows that this was all perfect fulfillment of God's sovereign plan. And if it sounds like I'm repeating myself, I am. I want you to see more than anything as we look at the story of Genesis that God's plan will not be thwarted, will not fail. 
God's sovereign plan is good, and you want to be in it. Sometimes God's sovereignty really makes us uncomfortable. You can't do anything about it. God's plan is going to happen. In verse 32, uh, Joseph says, The doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. It's fixed. It's fixed by God. God's sovereign plan will come to pass, and many of us are uncomfortable with God's sovereignty, and we say, well, what about man's responsibility, and you know, what about our choices, and what about our free will? How do we reconcile that with the fact that God's got everything already planned? Well, you look at verse 33, that Joseph said, now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. There was still discernment to be done and wisdom to be carried out. There were still choices that had to come about. It's, it's like, you guys ever read Goosebumps books when you were a kid? The great theologian R.L. Stein taught us a lot growing up. And the, the Goosebumps books, there were some that had uh, Choose Your Own Adventure. You ever, there, it wasn't just Goosebumps, but those are the ones I read. But there are other ones. Choose Your Own Adventure, and you read you know, 10 or 20 pages in, and then it says, okay, now what do you want the main character to do? Do you want to do this, or do you want to do this? And then you turn to that page in the book. And it feels like, man, I've got the power. I'm, I'm controlling where this story goes, but there's only a limited number of things in the book, right? And the book's only 200 pages. You can't, you can't do anything you want. You're limited there because you're not the author of the book. Stein is. You're a participant in it. You get to make some choices, but you're not the author. And this is how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility actually work together in beautiful harmony, that we are given a call to be holy, a call to make godly choices, a call to, to make the choice between good and evil, to choose good. But ultimately, we're not the authors of our story. Don't let that frustrate you. Let that comfort you. Let that bring peace to you that God is the author of your story. Listen what that means. The year that you're born in, the day that you're born, was no mistake. It was by God's sovereign plan. The family that you were born into, whether they were a great family or a horrible family, it was by God's sovereign plan. The positions and the jobs and the people you find yourself around, the place that you live, all of those things are orchestrated by God's sovereign plan, and you're a part of his story. It's a good thing. Make good choices in that story to honor the author of it. I think a beautiful illustration to close with is Harmonies, I don't, everyone knows I'm a great singer, right? Some of y'all chuckled. I, I sang a solo in church one time, not this church, a different church. I don't go there anymore. And um, <laughs> after I sang that solo, with a microphone and everything, my wife said, please don't ever do that again. <laughs> but I, I used to sing in the choir, and that's why New Heights don't have a choir. And, um, and the choir leader would try to teach us about harmonies. And, and they, was, they wouldn't let me sing the lead part. The melody is what it's called. And I was like, I want to sing that part. And they're like, no, Will, you're going to sing this part. And this is what you got to sing. And my brain could not sing the part that wasn't the melody. Because I'm hearing the melody. I'm like, no, I want to sing it like I hear it on the radio. That's how I want to sing it. And they're like, no, you got to sing this part. And I would listen. And they would give me an example. They'd sing it for me. And I'd say, no, you're singing it wrong. That's not how the song goes. <laughs> that's, not, that's not right. And then if you just listen to someone sing that harmony part by themselves, it doesn't sound like the song. It doesn't sound good, right? But then when you, when you hear it all blended together, man, it's like angels singing. I wish I had the ability to do that. And, and when, it, when it all blends together, it is this beautiful harmony that is a picture of eternity, I think. 
Because what God has done is he has placed us in a place of harmony. And so many times we think, no, God, that's not where I'm supposed to be. No, Lord, I don't want to be doing that. I want to be doing this. No, God, that's not what you have for me. It can't be. And in reality, God is saying, play your part in the bigger story. Know that you're in this with godly people who I'm redeeming from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and ultimately it is for the author's glory, not our own. Joseph's story and the sovereignty that completely surrounds his circumstances should bring comfort and peace to us because God knows us just as deeply and closely as he knows Joseph. And he has called you to where you are that is, that is a place that can reach darkness like no other person in this room can reach. There are people in your life that you are the only one that can reach them of us gathered in this room. I, I could try to talk to them. They ain't going to listen to me. It won't do any good. That God has uniquely positioned you to attack darkness in their life. I pray that we're all obedient to that call. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.